live every weekday at noon and then as a podcast. This is Money Web at Midday. I'm your host, Jimmy Moyaha, standing in for Jeremy Maggs with 30 minutes of express news on the latest developments in South Africa and around the world, including interviews with business and political leaders, prominent newsmakers and top commentators. On the show today, we take a look at the media announcement by the Justice, Crime Prevention and Security Cluster on the deployment of the SANDF in terms of as an effort to handle illegal mining. We speak to a forensic investigator around that. Uh, we take a look at the clear plan that's needed for municipalities uh, or needed by municipalities in order to ensure service delivery following the midterm budget policy statement that was released last week. Uh, we take a look at the slow responses from political parties regarding the coalition framework that aims to or hopefully uh, aims to be finalized before the 2024 uh, general elections. And then we get a sense of the latest developments out of the Israel-Gaza uh, conflict with Israel announcing that they intend to begin a daily four-hour pauses in a fighting in North Gaza to allow for aid and civilians to flee. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. We start off with the developments coming out of the media briefing this morning from the Justice Crime uh, Prevention and Security Cluster. They've uh, given an update on some of their work. I'm joined on the line by Calvin Rafadi to take a look at this. Calvin, uh, thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, the uh, announcements that came out today were covering a range of things uh, from the cluster, uh, but let's focus on uh, the uh, illegal mining side of things. Is the SANDF at this stage equipped to deal with the policing efforts that the government is calling on them to do? Uh, good day, Jimmy, and good day to the MoneyWeb family. Yeah, I guess uh, the briefing and also issues about the SANDF, they, they wanted to actually give confidence to the people at, at the cost of at least close to a half a billion. So they will be deployed until the 28th of April, which is next year. But just to answer you, uh, you know, with the, with the SANDF, there will just be troops to follow up on issues like, uh, you know, there's violent crime there and uh, they can come back and also mitigate, you know, temporarily situations just to commit. But to deal with organized crime uh, as illegal mining as it is, it is not possible for them to eradicate that, but we need subs for to eradicate that particular issue of organized crime. Calvin, does the government have an actual strategy for this, or are they just throwing um, the the SAPS and SANDF at the problem and hoping it solves itself? Yeah, I guess so. They don't have a strategy, and there's no political will. In fact, you know, coming to speak of that, uh, I think in the same breath we need to check the uh, appraisal or performance of. Uh, the Minister of Police, including the Minister of DMR. So what I'm saying is uh, there are certain units in within SAPS which are structured uh, to combat such issues whereby they are faced with a situation where people are heavily armed and they've got explosives for that matter. And uh, you get your likes of your NIU, National Intervention Unit, you get TRT, and uh, even including they've got their own, uh, uh, I'll say, um, a, a, a military militarized unit called special task force to deal with such matters. Kelvin, the 
announcement or the media statement rather alluded to uh, plans to seal mines and efforts to uh, stop illegal mining from that perspective. How have these plans um, unfolded? What are the results of the plans and have they actually successfully sealed any mines up to this point? Yeah, well, I guess they just put up slabs there and there, of, but the, the issue of illegal mining, uh, I think DMR needs to come clean and we need to, they need to also expose the modus operandi of this particular uh, previous owners that were supposed to rehab this particular mine. And why I'm saying the modus operandi, I mean, uh, Jimmy, what they do, these people, they give uh, insurance guarantees, bank guarantees on a lifespan, let's say, of 20 years. Upon 15 years of them mining, what they do is on the 15th year, they now pick up and then they sell the mine to someone else. So in, in essence, they are running away. So these people, they need to be traced. They need to be held accountable. And if they've given fake warranties, uh, guarantees uh, at DMR, uh, we need to go after civil claim and even blacklist them to do any business in the whole world. Mm. The JCPS cluster gave an update on some of their successful efforts in uh, arresting illegal miners in seizing assets, seizing finances. Uh, Have those arrests been fruitful arrests? Are they arresting the right individuals or are they arresting foot soldiers and not the kingpins behind the deals? Yeah, look, uh, in most of those uh, arrests, you get the the, the foot soldiers and then the kingpins. uh, But how they, they operate these people? You know, there are people in the communities they've been calling for SANDF because they don't have trust in the police, whereby they can see there are many arrests, but uh, the people that are arrested, they are seen back in the streets, especially even with their pendugas, uh, the, the, the thing that they make the gold and process the gold. And there are community members that benefit from uh, these syndicates when they pay rental in their houses, they support some of the local shebins, and they even capture the, 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 uh, the community in helping them out in funeral arrangements and paying for their school fees for that matter. But in the same breath, the, the big fishes, they capture the politicians, they capture the big guys in, in subs. So they are not sitting and uh, going under underground for, for many days, you know, with a scaffolding uh, full of food or, or even liquor and spending days in the underground or even fighting for thefts. But they are the big guys who are benefiting and it's very difficult to process these particular people because of our state security and crime intelligence. They are missing in action when it comes to this. Calvin, what more needs to be done from a government point of view to get a handle on this illegal mining situation? Look, we need the, the data from state security. They need to tell us. They need to see, uh, We need to see how far are they when it comes to issues of uh, uh, Poker Act on who should uh, fall into this particular category of Poker Act which is the prevention of organized crime. So once that kicks in, then we are able to, you know, uh, uh, um, disarm these people of their assets because they, they've elicited the, uh, most of the money from the proceeds of this illegal mining. And once that happens, then they, they can't focus, they can't concentrate. But at the same time, we need to have the government, even on pro bono, if it comes to a push, they need to, to put up a website and put all those companies that they are looking for that they, they were supposed to rehab this particular mine and will help them to trace them and you'll get a shock jimmy that some of them they are residing still residing in south africa as as the government claims that they can't find them but uh, we need to activate the poker act on the big fishes and eradicate those uh, uh, foot soldiers uh, especially now that they are very well armed because the only time they fight is when they fight for thefts and uh, they can easily be identified uh, if uh, uh, you deal with the communities 
you get good info from the communities. Community engagement and uh, getting ahead of the problem. Thanks so much, uh, Kelvin Rafadi, forensic investigator, giving us his thoughts on the JCPS's cluster uh, briefing that was given this morning. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. Last week, our finance minister delivered his midterm budget policy statement. And in that statement, some of the pronouncements were around municipalities, uh, including absorbing of municipal debt and the role of municipalities in enabling service delivery. I'm joined on the line by the supply chain executive at a beef master group, uh, Ruli van Renen, to take a look at some of these uh, statements made by the minister. Ruli, thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, What's the role of municipalities within the agricultural community? and how important is that role? Good day, Jimmy. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity to uh, have a quick discussion with you. Now, municipalities play a vital role within the agricultural sector in that we as an agricultural community rely on the town's infrastructure to supply us. And we rely on it for our people, the people who work for us, who work with us, other companies that provide services. And if that infrastructure dilapidates, we have to incur more costs which boils down actually right back to the consumer who actually then pays for that. If we don't have proper infrastructure and services available close by, it becomes more expensive. It's a concern for us that the way things are going and that there is no sign of improvement at this point in time. Ruli, in terms of the plans that were outlined, I mean, the, the minister didn't really provide any color around that he just said that the role of municipalities is quite essential as beefmaster have you identified uh, any recommendations or any uh, proposals that you've put forward in terms of how you think municipalities can be handled that forms part of it what the minister said is that you know there is going to be more money available or you know funds will be allocated to improve on infrastructure and services but that's the old issue is that there's no real plan put forward it just seems that it's the same structure and the same setup of failure that we keep on seeing over and over again. The dealings that I've had with the municipalities personally is that they're, they're good people. Uh, I don't think they're bad people at all. It's just the knowledge and skill required is lacking. And I think that's where if you do have the funds, but to get the projects on the ground going, and there's a disconnect, especially from the management side. and with all respect, the management changes every couple of years. How do you really put a plan to work on the long run if you've only got six months, as most of these uh, um, interim management is, or even up to a four-year term? It's very difficult to get those plans going. And that's why I think we see the failures and the systemic decline in the municipal infrastructure that we keep on seeing. Mm. In terms of those... um systemic failures within the municipalities, how can that be mitigated if we're looking at uh, the service delivery component of it? Because non-service delivery is not good for anyone. Well, I think if we refer to it uh, next year that uh, we do have the election year coming up, we need to vote differently. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really mind what you vote then, but you have to, one, say your say. Mm. And as, as a community member, that remains important, but also to engage with the municipality. It's very easy to stand aside uh, with your friends and just complain. But what are you actually doing about the problem? Have you walked into your local mayor's office and said, I am a concerned citizen of, the, of uh, this community and I would like to help. What, what do you need help with? I think that's, you know, that's an attitude difference, even though there's nothing at that point in time. That's a difference that you can make just by 
being open to conversation and assistance. Mm. Uh, that's what I personally do is I'm engaged with them. And even if it's just my just to get my opinion on something or to arrange for some assistance in some way, uh, that's a notable difference. It's very easy to stand one side and criticize. That will not make the difference required. Mm. Ruli, what assistance is required from the agricultural community in respect of municipalities? What more needs to be done to create that enabling environment for uh, the agri-sector? You know, one, we need to care. If I look at uh, some of the towns, um, the infrastructure concerning roads, say, for instance, uh, you know, it's going backwards and dilapidating. But we, as uh, agriculture industry, we have trucks on the road. Do we send our trucks onto the roads in the municipality that cannot handle the weights? Do we uh, look, try and look after the roads in such a manner that we, uh, we utilize roads that are fit for those trucks? It's an example. How is it that we care? Or do we all just establish a no-care attitude and everything just goes down, uh, downhill faster? Another uh, option might be, you know, municipalities do struggle sometimes. They call me on weekends. They have a problem with emergency electrical supply for some reason or a pump that's broken down and they can't get those services from somewhere else. They need help. Do we turn a blind eye or cold shoulder or do we actually help? That makes a difference. It's an attitude that we need to change within ourselves. A clear plan of action is needed if municipalities are to continue delivering services effectively. Thank you so much, Ruli uh, van Rienen of a Beef Master Group. Top stories to keep your eyes and ears on. Our Deputy President Paul Mashatile has said that very few parties have responded to their calls to make inputs uh, regarding the national framework for coalition governments. Interesting times, interesting times indeed. I'm joined on the line by Dr. Levin Doe, political analyst, to take a look at this. Uh, Dr. Doe, always a pleasure speaking to you. Uh, from the framework and from what the Deputy President has reported, do we know who has contributed and responded? I believe the responses or requests for responses have been out for over three months now. Good day to you. Good day to the listeners at home. Thank you for having me. These are issues um, of great concern, especially for um, our government and how we move South Africa forward. But you'll recall that some few months back, there was um, a forum that was uh, organized for different political parties to have an understanding and views on matters that will relate to coalitions. And the unfortunate part is that instead of taking uh, the opportunity and uh, ensuring that we are able to move forward, most political parties' participation was only on the basis of blaming the process and how things were actually organized. But at the same time, I think it is time in South Africa that we start asking questions to our politicians, especially the level of patriotism that we expect from our uh, politicians or political parties. We have, on numerous occasions, observed that um, instead of putting the interest of South Africans, our politicians would put the interest of themselves and we continue suffering. The fact of the matter is that 
if we have got responsible politicians, we cannot leave the situation unattended because the clear observation is that in most coalitions, there is no progress. And the constant delay by our politicians should be a matter of great concern. Dr. Ndo, you just mentioned that uh, the current structure of coalitions uh, doesn't necessarily benefit South Africans. How important is this framework uh, for governance if we are to anticipate that come 2024 we could potentially see uh, the reality of a coalition-led national government? Well, I think a framework will be quite important because uh, it should be binding to those who are getting into coalitions Ordinary citizens should therefore be able to know um, what are the interests of those that are entering into a coalition. And also at the same time, it will be good for the purposes of of accountability. As long as you have a situation where political parties will enter into agreements that are done behind closed doors, which members of political parties would not know, but it's only known by those that are in leadership positions. Ordinary supporters and ordinary citizens would not know what are the details of these agreements. It will constantly put us in a very, very dangerous position. My view is that politicians and political parties should just show an element of patriotism sit down together and ensure that there is an agreement or a a framework that is agreed by everyone so that ordinary citizens should know what is happening and they would know the right people to blame. What is the impact if we, or if politicians continue delay in responding to this uh, call for commentary and call for finalization, would this have a material impact if we go into an election year that then sees a coalition government but that has no framework for governance? Yes, it starts with um, the degree of patriotism on the part of our political parties, as I've said, but it also means that we're going to see what has been unfolding in the city of Johannesburg. We're going to see what has been unfolding in the city uh, uh, of Tane, Ekuruleni, and Nelson Mandela Bay. Instability, instability, infightings, and the change of political leadership. That has got a huge negative impact on the ordinary citizens uh, uh, that these people are supposed to to serve. So if we do not have an agreement, let's prepare ourselves for a huge disaster in South Africa. Dr. Ndo, do you believe South, uh, political parties should declare ahead of the elections who they plan on working with to assist us as voters uh, in making, our de- uh, making an informed decision, similar to how we saw uh, with the Moonshot Pact? Well, that has the potential to work, but also at the same time, most political parties do not want to have such kind of agreements because they don't have a standpoint on what to do. If our politics is guided by an ideology, honesty, and putting people first, 
you would have political parties standing up and say, this is what we stand for, we can associate with party A and party B. But also at the same time, making agreements for political parties has, uh, has got its own disadvantages. For an example, some parties will feel that um, they'll be dominated by other parties, and some other political parties, as we have seen in the past, would easily get swallowed by the dominant political parties. So I think political parties are quite cautious uh, in terms of um, entering into these arrangements before elections, because there are many, many issues that you have to look at. For an example, if you talk about the Moon Pact, the question would be, how are they going to approach the elections? Mm. Is it going to be John Stenyazen running the elections for the Moon Pact? Is it going to be Savisa? Is it going to be Hemen Mashaba? So those are the issues, the small details that they have to look at. But at the same time, political parties are very jealous about their identities. So they do not want to be swallowed and have their identities lost. So those are some of the issues that we, we have to look at. But in our current setup in South Africa, coalitions are actually created after elections. And um, at that time, there are a lot of emotions that are, ta- uh, that are taking place. And there is a lot of excitement about being elected into positions. So whatever comes might be taken and they actually realize the truth after they've actually taken crucial decisions about the people that they're supposed to be working with. Do you believe the government is looking to push the coalition framework ahead uh, because they are worried about the potential outcome of next year? Well, what, where, what else have you seen as an emergency in government? <laughs> That's there a... is no emergency in government, unfortunately. The... Uh, we're talking about the same government that should have taken a decision in terms of the Electoral Act, and they keep postponing. We're also talking about the same government that has issues that relate to the land on the table, which they're also delaying. We have got a government that has to deal with the framework on on law. Uh, and they keep postponing. So let's wait and see. But uh, the South African government, the parliamentarians, have taught us that um, agency is verbal and it's not in action. Wait and see we shall. Dr. Levi Ndo, thank you for, for that analysis on the coalition framework that aims to be passed at some point. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. We move our attention to matters uh, of uh, development in the Middle East. Israel has come out uh, to announce that they will begin uh, daily four-hour pauses in the fighting in North Gaza in an effort to allow for aid and other um, humanitarian efforts to succeed within the amidst the conflict. They've made it very clear that there is no intention of ceasefire in that respect. And this announcement uh, came through from uh, Washington uh, late last night. I'm joined on the line by Genevieve Quintal of Amnesty International uh, to just take a look at these developments. Genevieve, good day. Thanks so much for taking the time. Will this uh, announcement allow for more aid to get into Gaza? 
Good afternoon, Jimmy. Thanks so much for having me. Um, no, we're saying this isn't good enough. Um, we are clear that there needs to be a complete ceasefire. Um, if you, you know, in light of this, this unprecedented civilian death toll and a humanitarian catastrophe that is increasing exponentially um, in the Gaza Strip. Um, and, and in the face of this, and you know, we've got to use these big words like unprecedented humanitarian disaster. It's, it's getting worse every single day um, while Israel just intensifies its bombardment um, and, and people just keep dying. And an immediate ceasefire by all parties is vital. And the only way we're going to enable that aid agencies get a sufficient relief into the strip um, and that they are able to distribute it safely and unconditionally. Four hours a day does not allow this. Mm-hmm. Genevieve, how bad is the situation on the ground in terms of aid, in terms of the aid that's required and in terms of the organizations that are having to contend with these um, developments? So, Jimmy, we, we are a research and legal-based organization. We're not a first responder. We don't specifically deal with aid. Uh, we do have people on the ground in Gaza and Israel who are documenting human rights violations. We have an evidence lab who is looking at any videos, anything that comes through, and we are documenting what's happening there. Um, so like yourself, like so many others, we are hearing from other um, aid organizations, UNICEF, Red Cross, Doctors Without Borders, about the, about how dire the situation is. But I think we, we've seen that, you know, dis, despite the, the lack of aid, the fact that people, so many people are dying, thousands of people are dying, um, we're seeing a potential genocide. Um, we really, this uh, we need that immediate ceasefire. Um, it, it's, it's not only about aid, but it's about the thousands of lives that are being lost. Genevieve, earlier this week, Amnesty noted that there was an increase in the number of administrative detentions um, by Israel. Uh, This is obviously the detention without charge or trial, and it's renewed indefinitely. Why is this happening? So this is something that um, Israel has systematically used um, to persecute Palestinians um, rather than... rather than used as, a, it's, it's actually only supposed to be used as an extraordinary and selective um, preventative measure. Um, so so this is something that has gone on before this. Um, the Israeli authorities have, have though, in the last um, month, or last four weeks, drastically increased this use of administrative detention. Um, and, and it's a form of, of, of arbitrary detention. It's a form of silencing people for speaking out. Um, and it, it's, it's it's an extended measures that that facilitate inhumane and degrading treatment of prisoners, um, and and so yeah, it's it's a way of of silencing people and and continued oppression of the Palestinian people, which we've been seeing for decades. Genevieve, Israel has made it very clear that uh, they've not agreed to any ceasefires uh, and they've also said that they are open to communication and looking at uh, briefings or having discussions around this. But to be clear, the ceasefire is not on the table. They've committed to a three hour notice period before these four hour um, pauses. Is that going to have uh, a meaningful impact in terms of being able to get civilians out of those areas? I, I, I don't think so, to be honest. We've seen the 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 use of force by Israel, the the, the kind of military they have, um, the kind of damage that's been done in the past four four weeks. I almost said four months. Sorry, four weeks. Um, we need an absolute ceasefire. This is this is a form of collective punishment. The killing of civilians is a war crime. Collective punishment is seen as a war crime. 
We need, I mean, we need to completely push for an absolute ceasefire. The UN, we saw that votes go down um, go down at the UN, what was it, a week or two weeks ago, um, majority voting for ceasefire. We're now, the UN um, international community now needs to look at mechanisms to hold Israel to, Israel to accountable to that. Um, three hours and then three or three hours notice, four hours to to allow Aden is not going to stop the killing of thousands of innocent civilians, which again, I repeat, is an absolute war crime. We are sitting here watching a war, war crimes happen in front of us. Um, like I said, we have people documenting this every single day, people on the ground. Um, there has to, if you care about humanity, this is a humanitarian issue. This isn't about whether you're on the side of Palestine or whether you're on the side of Israel. It's a humanitarian issue. It's about ensuring that that more people do not lose their lives. We've seen whole families wiped out. Um, and I think if anyone cares about peace in this world, cares about humanity, human li- life, you need to call for for a, a absolute ceasefire. We certainly need peace, and we pray that that is exactly the outcome that we achieve. Thanks so much, Genevieve. Genevieve Quintal of Amnesty International. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. As we wrap up the show, news you need to keep an eye on. Uh, a third suspect has been arrested for the Palapala break-in at President Cyril Ramaphosa's farm in Limpopo. Uh, initially, it was a close to 10 million rand that was stolen. There was a report that came out uh, just today saying that that number could be a lot higher. Uh, we initially had estimated around 580,000 US dollars. It looks as though that number, um, in terms of the report, that is, or in terms of the uh, statement amended by Arthur Frey, Asia has now, or now looks like it's sitting at around $4 million, so about 62 million rand. Uh, We're not too sure how that is going to unfold. The court case is still ongoing, uh, and we will keep an eye on that and keep you updated regarding that. Uh, Chief Justice Raymond Zondo has urged the government to pay whistleblowers who provide valuable information. His stance comes following the the National Prosecuting Authority's uh, directorate recovered 2.5 billion rand during the state capture uh, corruption probes. Zondo said that whistleblowers should receive a percentage of the money recovered when information they provided enabled investigators to crack the cases. And the eight police uh, VIP protection officers who are part of Deputy President Paul Mashatile's protection team accused of assault will go on trial on May the 6th. The National Prosecuting Authority says that they are ready to prosecute. That's been the show. Uh, MoneyWeb at midday, live at noon at weekdays, and then available as a podcast. Thanks for listening and goodbye.